Should we just have a chat and we see how it goes? Captured the essence of it all, eh? Welcome, Welcome. from Alpha, from Alpha. To, Omega. to Omega. Our demos are flat monsters. Welcome. I'd like to make the outrageous claim that has a little bit of truth. All of this things that's happening now with the computer, the digitalization of our society, of, of information, you could say in a way is the result of a philosophical question that was raised by uh, David Hilbert at the beginning of the century. It's not a complete lie to say that Turing invented the computer in order to shed light on a philosophical question about the foundations of mathematics that was asked by Hilbert. So it's as if the whole economy today is being run to keep the bank solvent, not to produce more goods and services, not to raise living standards, but all for the uh, aim of uh, increasing bank profits. Everyone has to line up and sing hosannas to our leaders. That's the job of intellectuals. Round up the chorus so they all sing praises to your leaders while they march in the parade and tell you how magnificent we are. And that's the historic task of intellectuals. Hello, and welcome to the seventh episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Thursday, the 14th of June 2012, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. Today, we'll be speaking to Colette O'Neill, author of the blog A Life in the Country, a YouTuber, and the woman behind the amazing Bialtana Cottage Permaculture Smallholding. Our chat will cover a wide range of topics from forest gardens, ancient burial sites and fairy rings, to how to build yourself a veranda, self-sufficiency, the cuckoo and space travel. But first, the boring stuff. On the podcast website, you can sign up to receive email notifications for the latest uploads. You can also join the From Alpha to Omega Facebook group, where I post interesting tidbits from around the web and where you can have your say. If you would like to help keep the show afloat and throw a few euro my way while they still exist, you can click the donate buttons on the podcast website. I'm delighted to say that this week's show has two sponsors, both out of the US, Manuel P and Simon C. Thanking you, gentlemen. Now to our chat with Colette. Unfortunately, Skype has been acting up again this week and the audio quality of the interview is pretty variable. I hope it doesn't cause you too much irritation. We join the conversation as, like any decent conversation between two Irish people, we are discussing the weather. Well, very stormy here. We've had really bad storms last night and all today. Lots and lots of rain. I've just walked over to the polytunnel and that's still intact, so I'm happy. <laughs> I think 
think the rain now has uh, diminished because we had this threat of three inches of rain and, and um, I can always gauge how much rain has fallen by looking over at Kilrone Mountain and there's a stream that comes down the mountain and when there's been really heavy, heavy rain, you know, you can actually see the white streak just coming down the mountain. You know, normally you can't see it. That's a very thick white streak, so I can only presume that we've had the amount of rainfall that was threatened. I'm at North Roscommon, at the very northern point. I'm sort of into that little kind of triangle where you have Sligo, Leitrim and Roscommon, they kind of merge. So I would be a couple of miles from Leitrim and a couple of miles from Sligo. It's just outside the village of Kiju, which actually won um, Ireland's tidiest town once. <laughs> It's near Boyle. Yeah, Boyle is one of those beautiful Irish towns that's kind of trapped in time. Beautiful kind of 1950s aura to it, you know. Some beautiful old Georgian doorways and stuff, you know, that have, haven't seen paint since the Georgians were there, you know. So it's, it's actually a lovely place. I really like it. It's full of atmosphere. So, Colette, can you tell us about Bialtine Cottage and what you've been up to there? I was working in London as a teacher for quite some time and looking for a place in Ireland and kept coming back and coming back and something about this part of Roscommon really attracted me because there's a lot of lakes here. You kind of get a feeling that you could possibly be in a, a rainforest. Sometimes, you know, when you look across the landscape, there's a lot of ancient trees from some of the old estates and there's lots of lakes and lots of rivers and it's all, it was also to probably one of the cheapest places in Ireland <laughs> to buy a property. So I found this old cottage and I found it in the month of May. Hence the name Bealtaine Cottage because Bealtaine is the Irish for May and it heralds the summer. So I kept working in London for a little bit longer. I mean, this was 2004 I sort of then went backwards and forwards doing a bit of supply teaching just to keep the money rolling in. And I managed to get the cottage into a habitable state. And um, then I decided, you know, this was the point at which I was just going to jump into the deep end, sever the ties with London and work and go headlong into this permaculture project. It was by the end of the following Christmas, it was 2004-2005, when I actually started planting. And I've just kept planting, really. <laughs> what state was the cottage itself in before you moved in? Well, the roof was leaking. <laughs> A bachelor had lived here. So there was no kitchen. No kitchen? There was no kitchen. There was no kitchen sink. I mean, what would a bachelor want with a kitchen sink? <laughs> There was a built-on bathroom which had been built on some time previously. So there was a little sink in the bathroom. And I think just as long as he could get water from the tap, that was enough for him. So the cottage itself was quite derelict. The grass was growing up around the back door. There was no proper road into the cottage. It was on a north-facing slope. The soil was very compacted, doby, very wet. There had been no drainage carried out in the land, probably since the ancient Celts. <laughs> and there was a, a hill behind the cottage, which every time it rained, there was a huge amount of water come down off the hill and basically, well, almost coming through the back door. So how big was the plot of land you bought with it? 
Three acres. Three acres. Was this the typical boggy, reedy, <laughs> West of Ireland, <laughs> acidic plot? Very, very much so. Although not too acidic because there's quite a lot of dope here. I mean, I've never carried out a soil test in my life. I, I look at the soil. I handle the soil. I can see what grows in the soil by looking at the plants that's there. So I knew that the soil wasn't too acidic. There was a fair amount of dope and there was probably a fairly good alkaline balance going on there. Now, dope can be the bane of the average farmer. You've probably heard of the adobe houses that they build in places like New Mexico. And the adobe houses are basically made from clay, local clay, that when it's mixed with water, becomes almost like a cement. So the dope that's here in Ireland is very similar. Now you could actually dig out a bucket of dope and mix it with water and quite successfully make a little coil pot. So it's very dense, it's very heavy, it's very clayey. It can be incredibly fertile, but you've got to open it up. And by opening it up, it means starting to pile on humus, what we call humus, which is all the stuff that would normally come down off trees and hedges and, you know, all the, all the decaying life that would grow in it to come back down in it. And so that and some sand or grit. And once you can get that dough working, and it doesn't really matter if you're on a north-facing slope and it's wet. If you can drain the land and get that dobe opened up and working, you can grow some amazing stuff. Now, I knew that much. I've never had any formal training in gardening or horticulture. But from what I've read, and, for, and more importantly, within permaculture, from what you observe, because observation is probably the very first key in permaculture. You observe, you walk the land, you look at what's happening, you look at what's growing, you identify the wet parts, you know, why is it wet there? You begin to build up a picture of the land. Now this is something which is quite rare now in Ireland because so many farmers go out in their jeeps or go out on their tractors, you know, and I've actually seen them pull up on the side of the road to give a quick head count to the cows and then drive on. So that interface with the land isn't happening. So a lot of farmers would say, as was said to me when I bought this place, oh, that's poor land. Sure, I'll rent it off you for a couple of cows. <laughs> so that's the kind of main problem, as I see, in agriculture here in Ireland that there isn't that knowledge. You know, our, our grandparents, our grandparents would have had a working knowledge of the land, right? But this generation and perhaps the previous generation have lost that. So I, you know, decided that this was going to be a good place. It was going to be a challenge. It was within my price range. I mean, if I had more money, I would have bought something a lot easier to start a, a small holding on. But anyway, this is where I ended up. So can you give the listeners an overview of permaculture? Well, permaculture, the phrase permaculture was coined in the 70s by Bill Mollison, who's an Australian. He was lecturing at a university in Australia and he was basically 
there was a lot of various things happened within his career, but he decided that he wanted to kind of get back to the land and come up with solutions to all the stuff that was happening in Australia. I mean, a huge amount of drought out there, a huge amount of crops dying because of drought, land being uh, turned into desert. You know, there was all kinds of problems like that. And he sort of invented permaculture, and it comes from two words, permanent and agriculture. And it basically means that what you plant is a permanent feature. So instead of opening up the soil every spring, instead of cutting the soil open to plant stuff and exposing it to the elements, which is basically an unnatural thing to do, because the only exposed soil that you'll find on the globe is desert. So instead of doing all that, you build the soil. So for example, if you want to plant say some potatoes, say potatoes because potatoes is something that everybody plants in Ireland. Well this year and last year I grew my potatoes by simply putting a little bit of manure down on the ground, putting the seed potato on top, on top of grass, covering it over with a layer of compost and covering that over with a layer of straw. Now I had a fantastic crop of potatoes. Because you don't need to dig the soil. What you need to do is keep building up the soil. And permaculture does just that. It builds the soil. So you're not taking from the soil each year. You're actually allowing things to grow without, you know, this this huge upheaval. Because once you open up the soil, you know, I mean, we've had some pretty bad rain here over the past 48 hours. Very heavy rain. Now, if I had have had any soil exposed, that would have been leached very badly because the heavy rain would just have driven a lot of the nutrients down further into the ground, leaving that top bit of soil very, very barren, you know. How has permaculture influenced the design of your small holding? Permaculture is broken into zones, okay? So you have a certain amount of zoning within permaculture. I'm not going to go too much into the detail of that because a lot of listeners, if they're interested, can find out quite easily about this. But what that zoning actually implies and what it means when you start to implement it is to bring all your life together into one easy, manoeuvrable area, if you like. So, for example, it rains a lot in Ireland. This cottage was like every other house in Ireland. It had a front door and a back door. And when you went out the front door, you could pelt it with the rain. And when you went out the back door, you could pelt it with the rain. So the first thing that I did was to build a veranda along the back of the cottage. Now, why the back? Well, the back faced south. So the veranda was going to serve several purposes for me. First of all, it was going to allow me an all-weather area that connected me and my home with my land. It was going to allow me somewhere to take off my coat if it was wet and hang it up, to put my wellies, to grow plants, to have logs stacked. So that was a very practical design element within my permaculture plan. So that was built and that's been incredibly successful. And it's also kept all the rain off the back of the cottage. And did you build this yourself? 
I built it with a friend of mine who has helped me with quite a lot of projects and all the projects are built in wood. So I've become pretty adept at working with wood. There is only one rule, measure twice and cut once. <laughs> so myself and Michael worked on building the veranda and then I had a little barn built onto the side of the house. So I would be able to walk from the veranda into the barn. And the barn again, south facing, so the south facing side of it was left totally open because the wind just does not move from the south here. So the barn has allowed me to store fuel because I have a solid fuel stove, which I had put in. It's allowed me an area where I can dry clothes. The veranda has allowed me an area where I can have plants, where I can sit and have a pot of tea if it's raining, where I can dump my shopping. So those are practical design elements, which interestingly enough, Despite the huge boom in property building here in Ireland, you won't find those features on any of the new properties. So it's as though, again, there is a disconnect between the architects and their environment. You must look very stylish in Roscommon with a veranda <laughs> on your property. Nobody can see my property now because it's surrounded by trees. That's what the blog is for. That's what the blog is for. Can you tell us about the bog pool area you've created on the property? Yeah, now this is quite interesting because I did have some kind of hard landscaping work done within the first 12 months of buying the property. A great guy called John Moran who came in with his digger, uh, I say a great guy, he listened to me. Now not a lot of guys with diggers listen to women, but he listened to what it was I wanted. And he took the time to listen and he could see that what I was saying made perfect sense. So I had a drain dug out on the southern side and I had that connected in with what was an old stream bed. I kept saying to John, I want it to look very natural, so I don't want the straight lines. So he kind of curved it and whatever. As soon as he got down into the lowest part of, of the land, which is where the ponds were dug out, as soon as he put the digger shovel into the soil, water just started to just ooze out. Now that was seven years ago when John dug out both the ponds. The ponds have remained full with water and a stream running into them and running out of them ever since. So that's how much water was actually trapped in the land. Did you have to put any type of lining in or was it all natural? No liner at all. 
absolutely none. It's quite amazing. What was even more amazing was that by the following spring, there was frogs laying frog spawn in it. And by the following summer, there were dragonflies and mayflies all over the pond, water beetles. And even now I have, um, I have little newts down there in the pond. So it's just brimming with life. So it's just amazing how nature, once you kind of open a portal for nature, she just barges in and that's it, you know. It's quite, it, it, it's actually very reassuring because you think of all the devastation that's been caused environmentally and you look at the before pictures of this place eight years ago and you look at them now and like that wasn't an army of people that did that. That was like one woman planting trees and shrubs and bushes and stuff, you know. And when you bought the property, were there particular topological properties of it that attracted it to you? Or you just kind of liked the setting and said, let's go? There was just something spoke to me and I can't really articulate it. I don't even know if we have the language to begin to articulate stuff like that. Because much of the language that we've used in a spiritual sense has been dictated to us, you know, by religion and churches for thousands of years. So I haven't got the language to articulate whatever that was that drew me to this place. But there was something. I don't know what it was, but there was something. It may have been in the visual. There was something intuitive as well. I mean, there was a hill behind the cottage. And I think in terms of feng shui, that's supposed to be a very positive thing, you know. Gosh, I look at the pictures now, you know, and I think to myself, how on earth? Did I ever say, yes, I will buy the property and pay the asking price? <laughs> because it just, you know, the pictures of it, you have this very desolate looking property. You know, there's nothing at all attractive about it. It looked quite sad and um, rejected and almost a place just to end your days quietly. You know, it didn't look like anything that could possibly promise life. Somewhere suitable for a graveyard. <laughs> yes. Now that's very interesting that you should say that though, Tom, because a few years after that, I got talking with this old lady who was my nearest neighbour, Jenny O'Connor, a very wise old woman. And she was telling me about now, whether it was her husband or her father who was building the house, but they'd built it beside the old home place. So it may have been the home place that she was referring to. But she did say when the foundations were going down, they came across this huge stone. And so they did what a lot of people would have done at that time. They called in the local priest sort of for permission to move this stone. And the priest at the time said... Um, yeah, uh, you can move that and don't be vexed about any other stones you may find. This used to be an, an ancient burial site, he said. So whatever the priest knew, I mean, certainly hasn't been corroborated by anything from the land registry, let's put it that way. And I suppose in terms of archaeology, Ireland is still relatively new. And the only other thing then which came out a few years after that, which again, local people were loath to talk about. In fact, to this day, they won't tell me the exact site of it. There was a fairy fort within view of the house, um, just at the end of my driveway, really across the road 
a fairy fort that um, a local man who owned the land had taken stone out of and his family had very bad luck. To pacify the fairies, he was told to plant trees in the fairy fort or around the fairy fort. So he planted um, some oak trees. Now, I have identified these oak trees because they stand out in the landscape. They are the only oak trees on this landscape. So therefore, I have a pretty good idea where the fairy fort is. Maybe something within my own intuition picked up and stuff like that. I don't know. I don't know. What other habitats have you created on the land? Well, up around the cottage, I have created orchards, vegetable beds, polytunnel. I have created a woodland, which was basically just some old, quite old, goat willow. You know, it was one of those tangly, briary places where the cows couldn't even get into. And I've turned that into a little woodland. And again, interestingly enough, within that space, because I thought to myself, why hasn't this space been cut back? Why has it been left like this? And within the space, a person who I know who works for the environmental services has identified a really old fairy thorn. And at the base of the fairy thorn is quite a large stone, which, according to what people have said, indicates burial, and a burial which wouldn't have been allowed in a churchyard, maybe an unbaptized baby or a suicide victim. And again, interestingly enough, within that space, because there's a part of that little woodland which is incredibly wet, and I started to dig down in order to find where all this water was kind of oozing from, and eventually I borrowed um, a pickaxe from a neighbour, because I came across stone and I went down through the stone, found a spring well. <laughs> and the water has rushed from that spring well out onto the little stream bed and down through both ponds from the day it was opened up. So again, it's a kind of magical little place. You know, there's all kinds of, I'm continually finding things which point to other lives having been lived here. Maybe a long time ago. He said to her, you're sweared and wrong. Six fine children you've had born at do well below the valley. There's two with them by your brother John at do well below the valley. Another two be your cousin Dan at do well below the valley. Two with them by your father dear at do well below the valley. Green grows the lily, right among the bushes, oh. If you be a man of noble fame, you'll tell to me what happened to them at the well below the valley, oh. Green grows the lily, oh, right among the bushes, oh. There's two buried beneath the stable door at the well below the valley, oh. Another two buried beneath the cross at the well below the valley, oh. Two with them buried beneath the shrine that do well below the valley, oh. Green grows the lily, oh, right among the bushes, oh. Have you planted native species into that area? I've planted anything and everything. Now, I say that because I've had a lot of visitors over the eight years, and the only thing I ever asked of visitors was that they would bring me trees. 
I know I should be only standing up for a native species, but I love trees. I love the fact that you know you can plant trees and if they're happy, they'll make a home for themselves and if they're not, they won't. So I've planted a lot of native trees and a lot of those have grown from seed, like ash, hawthorn, and I've planted a lot of willow, although I wouldn't classify the willow as trees. And I've planted a lot of non-native species as well. For example, beech. I love beech trees. I've also grown a lot of western cedar. Over the course of the winter, I planted 31 trees onto edges of the driveway because the trees are habitats, the trees give shelter, the trees bring in birds, the trees drop all kinds of lovely stuff onto the earth. The trees give fruit, they give me nuts, and they provide timber from my stove. So most of the trees that I plant are trees that I know can be coppiced, because I would never have cut down a tree. A tree like the ash tree is a wonderful resource in Ireland, because the ash is the only tree that can be burned on the fire on the day it's cut. You don't have to season it, and it's a hardwood. And if an ash tree is coppiced, that means cutting it down to a certain level and letting it regrow again, that tree can stay alive in the landscape for 2,000 years or more. Can you tell people about your forest garden and what a forest garden is? Well, a forest garden, again, it emulates nature. So, for example, here at Daltona, I have about 38 fruit trees. So my forest garden, you're looking at different heights, different layers. So I have apple trees now, which are 20 feet high. And underneath the apple trees, I have blackcurrants. The blackcurrants grow very well under apple trees, because they like a bit of shade. And under the blackcurrants, I may have strawberries, I may have herbs, and there's a plant called rubus, which is like a ground-hugging plant. These beautiful fruits cross between a raspberry and a blackberry. And then there's lots and lots of herbs growing around that as well. So you've got one, two, three, you've got about four different layers. So you have this forest garden. So you'll find that one plant would rely on another plant, would rely on a tree, would rely on a ground cover. And they sort of support each other. The ground cover keeps the weeds away. And how much work do you have to put into this forest garden, like week to week? You know, permaculture is ideal. For say someone in my position, I'm a person on my own and I've got three acres. Once the planting is done, and once those plants and trees start to grow and develop, which they will do very quickly, there's very little input. The only work that I would do on a weekly basis here would be to mow the paths and again be harvesting the grass. Because grass, of course, is almost pure nitrogen. It's a wonderful resource. And, and as it dies down, it acts as a mulch, it feeds the plant, it feeds the soil, and it stops predatory weeds coming up. So that would be my main work each week. And that would take me a couple of hours once a week. I suppose the heavy work would be during the autumn and winter, 
And that would involve pruning. I do a lot of pruning because I make a huge amount of compost. So maybe I'd be outdoors three or four hours a week doing stuff like that. So I suppose in terms of time, it's not a huge amount of time, but initially it was. When the initial planting phase was going on, two and a half to three years, continual work, just planting, planting, planting. And were you supporting yourself with other work at the time or did you just did it all? When I decided to start the project, I decided I would give up smoking because uh, in order to kind of cut down on my expenses. So I gave up smoking and I then became a vegetarian and I'm now vegan. So in terms of supporting myself, I don't actually need to have a huge amount of money to do that. And how self-sustainable is your three-acre plot? Do you feed yourself for the whole year on what you make? I've only just cleared out last year's black currants from the chest freezer. I have a big pantry. One of the things that has evolved here has been the actual cottage as well as the land. I've had to construct a pantry and that's shelved from the floor to the ceiling. And in there, I, I, I keep all the stuff that I make. There's a huge amount of produce. So I make all my own chutney, all my own jam, surplus as well. So I, I, I would do a couple of markets a year and sell some of this produce, as well as callers to the cottage would buy. I make a huge amount of homemade wine. I'm not admitting to selling any of that. <laughs> um, Just drinking it. I don't drink. <laughs> and you can deduce whatever you want to from that statement so I make a huge amount of homemade wine and I turn a lot of what I grow into food that can be sourced all the year round so for example I grow a lot of pumpkins now the pumpkins will store in my pantry for a year without any problem I grow a lot of butternut squash and the same for those I grow most of my own potatoes, which I keep in the potato clamp outside for most of the year. I do a little bit of swapping, a little bit of bartering. I have a huge apple harvest here, so I would swap quite a lot of apples for things that perhaps I don't grow. Like I don't grow carrots or parsnips. I grow a lot of trees from seed, again, which I swap with people. This year I've grown a lot of rhubarb from seed, so that's completely organic. So there's a huge amount of, I mean, it really is up to the individual how much they want to grow and how much they want to use that to affect their own lives, whether they want to sell it or swap it or whatever, you know. So how far removed from the monetary economy have you become? Very, very removed. I live on very little. Most of what you would call consumer items, I can make anyway. I spin, I spin wool, so I knit. I'm pretty good at making clothes. And again, I can do a lot of stuff, which again would be an exchange of labor. Like I had a, a guy help me out with some woodwork here. And in turn, I made some curtains for his house. So there's that kind of stuff, you know, because I'm, I'm very far removed from the whole system. I mean, when I look back, say on my life in London and I was earning a lot of money. I was spending a lot of money. I think actually people do cut their cloth accordingly and I think the people who earn, I mean I don't know for you Tom but 
I remember starting off, you know, in teaching, earning a you know relatively small amount, spending accordingly. And as I went up the scale, the more I earned, the more I spent. Isn't that how life goes for most people? Yes, and very little return. And very little return. And mostly as well then, you know, you have a lot of, or you start getting plastic cards and stuff. I haven't had a plastic card for eight years. I don't have television, so I don't have to buy a TV license. I have a small car, and that's only because my mother lives in Oma, and I drive up and down to Oma. But if it wasn't for that, I could just get the little local bus service in time once a week. And, and do you teach permaculture at all? Well, again, you see, um, what I do is I keep an open house and open garden for whoever is genuinely interested. I don't charge anything for that. And people who want information, I wouldn't charge for that either. Because my attitude is information should be free. Knowledge should be free for everyone. You shouldn't have to pay. I know that there are permaculture teachers who actually rely on payment because of their lifestyle. But for me, I have very little to maintain in the monetary system. So therefore, I don't really have a need to ask people for money for the knowledge that I would part. Do you think your lifestyle can work at scale? Do you think everybody can get into it? Everybody, absolutely. Everybody. It actually involves, it involves thinking outside the box. You see, for the greater part of my life, I sort of lived in that box. Whatever was expected of me, I did. So I was expected to have a mortgage. I was expected to never be satisfied with where I lived, that I should have a bigger place or a place in a better area, that my car should be, you know, bigger each year or better or newer. You know, all that. But when you start to look at that, and especially now when so many people have been economically devastated that is a good time to just to stand outside of the box and say, what the hell is all this about? Why do I need a four-bedroomed house with three bathrooms that's heated by oil? What is that for? I mean, anything that I've built onto this cottage, I've built in wood. And people say, because again, it's this kind of mentality of inside this little box, it's very constricting and this is the only way you can think people have said oh why didn't you build that in concrete blocks you know a good permanent hold on a moment how long does anyone live on this planet why would I want to build something in concrete or stone when I can build it in wood that's grown here in Ireland and will definitely see me out so this mentality of, you know, you want to build a big house because you're going to leave it to someone. My word, you only have to walk the highways and byways of Ireland to see the dereliction of old houses. To know that there was very few people wanted any of them, you know. I want to break free.
Did you have a road to Damascus type <laughs> moment in your life? I think I did, actually, yeah. I think I did. Um, it was a whole series of, um, you know, what was I doing? Where exactly was I going? And, and, and what was the meaning of it all? You begin to think, well, gosh, you know, life is finite. It's not infinite. So it wasn't a kind of a, a spiritually uplifting moment. It was more fun rebellious an Irish rebel <laughs> well my name is O'Neill <laughs> I just felt that there was a better way of living and you know for all the years that I lived in London I always had an allotment now at one point I had two allotments and I kept ten and I used to love you know towards the end of the teaching day thinking oh gosh I'm going to get over to that allotment now this evening and you know, plant this, and, and, and I got so into it. Then I thought, well, surely I could just spend my life like this. And people said, oh, you know, if you leave teaching, you know, you won't get the pension, you won't get this. And, and then around that same time, a friend that I went to school with, Sonoma, who worked in a very glamorous job at British Airways, she had a headache on Sunday, and by Tuesday she was dead. And... I spent my school years with her, you know, and and I just thought, you know, we, we actually just need to live our lives, don't we? Because our lives are so precious. There's, they're sacred journeys. And yet society would have you believe that, oh, you're just a cog in the wheel. But you're not a cog in the wheel. You are a, a human being on an incredible journey. You know, life is incredibly short. And people should live their lives how they want to live their lives. And I think there's an awful lot of people now feeling very, very trapped and very disillusioned. I think permaculture has got something to offer everyone. Absolutely. So how is permaculture being taken up in Ireland? Is it becoming more popular? It's kind of all beginning to kind of happen at once now. You know, this this kind of spotlight on permaculture, it's just such an amazing Pandora's box of opportunity as opposed to what Pandora's box represented. You know, but it's just an incredible thing for this point in time. There's just so much devastation everywhere, environmentally, economically. People certainly here in this part of Ireland are at the wit's end about how to move forward. They can't see a way forward. And permaculture offers an incredible opportunity. And it's not just about growing food, it's about your entire life, you know. It affects everything. And it definitely affects your outlook because you just begin to see more and more possibilities, you know. A few summers ago, I had a couple of visitors. Hannah Mole was her name and her mother. And they had an organic farm in Roscommon. Now, Hannah has been on various permaculture courses. Then she started teaching permaculture. And 
she started bringing students here to Baltimore to see permaculture in practice. But Hannah is actually running the Permaculture All-Ireland Gathering at Strokestown. It is the first weekend in August. So that's actually happening in Roscommon. So it's amazing, isn't it, you know, how, how, how all that has worked out. Are there many sites like yours around the country that you know of? Well, as far as I know, and I may stand corrected, my permaculture smallholding would be the oldest one in Ireland. Now, permaculture is taught down in, in Kinsale College. Rob Hopkins teaches down there. And there are many sites around. But in terms of continual development and practice, this site is now eight years old. But as I say, I may stand corrected on that. So can you tell people about your blog and your YouTube channel? Well, I have a a great desire to encourage as many people as possible to look at permaculture, to consider permaculture and to see it as a real life changer, you know, which it is. So I decided I was going to do a blog, like a, a daily diary. I took photographs of what I was doing and, you know, show people what I'm doing and how I've done it and anyone who wants to contact me can ask me questions and and I'll help them out as much as I can. Now that started in August 2010 and it's built up, it's very slow to build up and there wasn't a lot of people from Ireland looking at it because most of the people who left comments were from America. It's very popular out there but it does begun to really snowball. Now I've had, um, I was looking at it today, I think there's about 160,000 hits on it. Now um, I got a video camera recently, it was a present, I've learned how to use it because I'm not a Luddite at all. Um, I love technology. So I've been taking videos now, just five minute videos because it takes me an hour to upload them and I've been putting them up on YouTube and they're starting to take off as well. A lot of people are very interested in what I'm doing. I get some lovely comments, and the comments are mostly on the lines of, you know, you've inspired me, I love visiting your blog. I think people feel good when they read the blog or visit the YouTube site. And that's how I want them to feel. I want people to see this as something that's very well within their grasp, you know. So do you have any full-time job as well at the moment? I don't mean full-time, but, you know, (laughs) establishment-type job. (laughs) Well, again, it's very interesting because I applied to the Roscommon Enterprise uh, sort of committee or whatever they are. Board. Board, thank you, (laughs) here in Roscommon to see if I could get a small bit of funding because what I wanted to do... I wanted to set up a permaculture roadshow and I wanted to take that round schools and colleges and community halls and festivals. So I was looking really for enough funding to buy a white screen, <laughs> a portable white screen, a laptop, you know, that I could present a film from, project it onto the white screen. And um, basically they said no. They'd be quite happy to help me develop a a visitor centre here, any amount of money, as long as I put up 50%. And I kept saying, I actually don't have any money, but I don't think they heard that. Following on from that, one of the teachers in the Roscommon VC 
has recently yeah. approached me and asked me if yeah. I would send in my CV hey. to Roscommon that they could hey. perhaps make it's use of my apple. skills and talents ah. and knowledge in permaculture apple. to deliver some kind hey. of a program there. It is a growing movement. It is something that B. can enrich people's lives, B. you know, and underpin an B. awful lot of other educational aspects. B. B is for butterfly. How did you find settling into a small place in Roscommon where maybe you didn't know too many people? I knew nobody, actually, because I bought this place. I mean, people said to me, a lot of local people said, um, oh, have you got any relations here? I said, no. What made you choose this part of... And I have had to go through the story. I find people incredibly nice, you know. I mean, most people, especially Irish people in, in a rural setting, they are inclined to keep themselves to themselves. But they're very nice, they're very helpful. They're non-intrusive. I don't go to church. I don't go to the pub and I don't play bingo. So I don't have a huge amount... <laughs> Of opportunity for social interaction. <laughs> but other than that, I've invited local people up to the house. Uh, had a lovely evening there a few Christmases ago, showing people how to make Christmas wreaths, you know, from locally sourced material. Another evening, we made Bridget crosses. Again, you know, an awful lot of local women had forgotten how to make those. They're a kind of traditional Irish cross made from a reed. That's right, made from rushes, you know. It's been nice, you know, doing stuff like that. I've also done a fair bit of volunteer work with local schools where I've gone in and done a spinning, an exhibition and a talk on spinning. I brought my spinning wheel. And then I've followed that up with a felt-making afternoon with small children. I really enjoyed that. And I've actually enthusiastically brought little bits of wool in, you know, that they've picked up the hedgerows and we've made felt. I mean, look, as far as resources go, this country could feed Europe and possibly clothe Europe. There's a huge potential here. People have been very disempowered. And I think what's happened within the European Union has been very disempowering for people. Because they've put people into like a, a tunnel vision perspective. You know, you raise cows, you raise sheep. End of people being able to interface with their environment, I think that power has been taken from them and that the enchantment of the landscape has been incredibly dumbed down and removed almost. So I feel in many ways that what's happened in Ireland over the past few years since 2008 has been devastating for people and I've seen it, you know, and, and, it's, and it's actually very upsetting to see people struggle. But at the same time, there is a better way to live. And I think that even if some of those people were to think back to their own grandparents and stories from their grandparents, you know, it wasn't all about hardship. And we now have technology. You see, because technology is, is, is a brilliant medium that can work for permaculture. All the best permaculture comes from implementing design and technology. A pencil is technology. And everything that you use from that point is technology. And we have those skills. You know, so that ability to make things and to use technology 
is there and, and the possibilities are endless. There seems to be a much greater reward when you create something yourself with your own hands. And also there seems to be less ability for people or nature to be exploited when the producer and the product and the consumer are all together close beside each other. And permaculture seems to embrace this kind of thinking. Absolutely. It is about a resource-based economy. It is about looking at the resources that you have. And this is something that I was talking about with a few local farmers over the course of the past year. Because each year, around about August, September, I would be buying six or seven bales of straw. Right Now, that straw is transported usually from Wexford, which is right down in the southeast of Ireland. Now, I'll pay near enough four euros for each square bale of straw. And I was saying to some local farmers, look, you know, would you not consider growing oats? Because, I mean, if you were to grow them without using any kind of chemicals or pesticides, I would definitely buy some of the oats, because I use a lot of oats in my cooking and in my baking. But more importantly, the straw itself from the oats, apart from the oats, is as valuable when it's bundled into small square bales and sold. So that could be a locally grown resource. So that's an example of how permaculture can empower people to start thinking about, you know, never mind, you know, the cows that I raise and are transported out to Saudi Arabia. Never mind about that market. What about the spare bits of land I have? Is there anything else I can do with that land? I mean, for example, I have another local town here. It's called Drumshambo. Now, up until about 20 years ago, you had perhaps the biggest jam-making factory in Ireland in Drumshambo. It was called Laird's, Laird's Jam. Now, your grandmother would have eaten Laird's Jam. The reason why that was cited there was because this area, the people who cited that factory knew enough about this land to know that it was capable of growing a lot of good fruit. And so everybody, and my neighbours have told me this, everybody had some apple trees or some blackcurrant bushes because those apples, those blackcurrants were sold to Laird's, right? Now, when Laird's jam factory closed down, do you know what local people did? And, and they've told me they cut down many of the apple trees. Again, it's about thinking outside the box. It's about thinking, well, hang on a minute. What can I do with apples or plums or even peaches? I grow peaches here. You know, okay, if I'm not prepared to store them, is there something I can do with them in order to give them that added value and sell them on? Of course there is. What was the reaction of the local farmers to your ideas? They were interested, actually. They were interested. Because, you see, again, since the recession has hit, and, you know, we're in for the long haul, because this is a worldwide depression, many of the local farmers are starting to, as they put it, clean up their land. So what they're doing is they're either opening up old drains or they're putting in new drains they are looking to restore a lot of the hedgerows there's a lot of stuff going on 
Europe at one point were paying Irish farmers to pull out their hedgerows. So that kind of thinking, which comes from a centralised area, which is remote from us, does more damage than good. In the short term, it represents money and subsidies and funding and, oh, you know, how great that is. But in the long term, it presents problems, big problems, because it affects the fertility of the land through loss of biodiversity, loss of hedgerows, loss of, loss of all those natural good things about the land, you know. In one of your videos online, I heard a cuckoo. You must be one of the few people in Ireland that has the cuckoo in their garden or on the land beside them. The cuckoo has cuckooed all night <laughs> for weeks. I've never heard a cuckoo in Ireland in my entire life, apart from your video. Oh, gosh. Well, the amount of cook I mean, there's more than one cuckoo. <laughs> the amount of wildlife here is just amazing. And I love... I love to hear the birds, you see, because again, and this is where I can become quite flowery about my passion for permaculture, because permaculture, for me, does feed the spiritual as much as the physical. I mean, that's fantastic background, you know, music to my work. <laughs> so is there anything else that we haven't hit on at all that you'd like to talk about? I suppose I would just like to put this small comparison. You know, when people say to me, um, or people have said to me, oh, well, you know, the old days, they weren't that good, and why do you want to live in an old cottage, and blah, blah. I say, well, look at the technology that we now have to live in old cottages really well. I have two layers of insulation here. I have double glazing, which I had put in without my frames being taken out, because there was hardwood frames here. I have a stove in my kitchen, which I feed with all the wood that I grow here. And that heats all my hot water. And it does all my baking. It makes my jams for me. Boils my kettle for me. Allows me to have a shower five times a day if I want. And feeds all my central heating radiators. So how good is that for technology? If you look at someone like me, who would have lived in a cottage like this a hundred years ago, they would simply have had an open fire with a pot hanging over it. So we can take the technology, we can implement it, we can make our lives in the country extremely comfortable, extremely comfortable, and live really well on very little so that's what I say to people who say, oh, you know, it's like going back to the old days. It's not, actually. It's taking the very best of what was then and the very best and brightest of what we have now and knowing that as technology develops, our lives will become easier and easier if we implement that technology and use it, you know, harness it, use it. I have a plan now for solar panels and a small wind turbine so that's going to be something else on the horizon. Do you have any plans to go to space? <laughs> I'd love to go to space, except that um, I think it just uses too much energy at the moment. <laughs> 
I know that someone had their ashes taken up on the space shuttle or something like that. I'd like my ashes. Now, in fact, I don't even want ashes. I'd like to ensure that a tree a tree grew out of me, you know. <laughs> Somebody could lay it down on, under an apple tree. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Colette, for coming on the show today. Thank you, Thomas. It's been great talking with you. I hope that everybody um, who listens to this takes more than a cursory glance at permaculture. It's there for everybody. Hey, it's a brilliant journey. It's a brilliant journey. I don't think I've ever been happier in my life than what I am now. Okay. Colette for her lively and captivating interview and I recommend people to check out her blog A Life in the Country and her YouTube channel Bialtina Cottage If you ever find yourself in that area of Roscommon I would recommend going to her cottage and having a look at it in person Permaculture and the space travel doesn't work out, Colette. With such a soothing, relaxing voice, you can always try your hand as a voiceover artist. On this episode, you heard the theme tune Shine On You Crazy Scumbag by Clive Star, Blue Ridge Mountains by Fleet Foxes, and Christy Moore singing The Well Below the Valley. You also heard I Want to Break Free by Queen, the Alphabet Learning with Nature video, and you are now listening to Donovan and Sergio Mendes performing there is a mountain. Oh, the snow will be a blind. Dick inside to see as it lies on yonder hillside. First there is a mountain, then there ain't no mountain. First there is a Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega.